Good morning again, Lakeside family. It is good to gather together in this way and be able to look into God's Word and to be able to encourage one another uh, on this Sunday morning. And uh, I'm recording this on Friday, and it is just another glorious day. And so we have this beautiful fall day, and uh, while I'm still recording outside, still working on getting it live from the auditorium, hang in there. I know I said that we were a couple of weeks away. We might still be a couple of weeks away, but we will get there. And uh, so whether you're gathering with us uh, at the church or whether you are watching this online, well, I know you're watching it online right now, uh, this is just good that we're gathering at this time together and being able to have fellowship together, even though we are not necessarily all at the same time or the same place. And this morning um, we are talking about and we'll be taking communion. And uh, I just thought since this is a communion Sunday, uh, we would look at the text in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, one more time and just look a little more deeply into communion or the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and why we take it. And sometimes it can certainly uh, be the case that we, as Christians, we come to the Lord's table, we take communion because we've always taken it. Uh, we know that Jesus commanded us to take it. Uh, we took it as children. We took it as families together, it's something our parents did, or it's something uh, we began to do because others, you know, we came came to know Jesus, you know, repented of our sins, have this new relationship with Jesus, went to church, and then, you know, Communion Sunday came along, or Communion Service came along, and it's like, oh, I guess this is something that I do as a Christian, and, and uh, we haven't always fully understood or sometimes fallen out of the habit of understanding why we do Communion and how it is meant to be taken, and so... Yeah, this morning is just a good opportunity for us as a church to look into the text in in 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, see Paul's instruction to a church that isn't doing communion well and what we can learn from a church that is not necessarily doing the best job of it. Um, So it's important, basically, once in a while to go back to the basics and articulate just what exactly communion and the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about. And, and how it functions in the life of a Christian, and how it functions in the life of a church. And uh, so as I said, our text, our main text for today is 1 Corinthians 11, and it's verses uh, 17, I think, down to about 30. And uh, uh, you can tap there on your phones or turn there in your Bible as we begin to unpack it. I'm not going to read the whole thing ahead of time. Uh, as much as I go through it, I will unpack it uh, as we get to each verse and talk about what Paul is talking about in each of the verses as he addresses the church in Corinth. But let's just pray before we do that. Father God, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks for the Lord's Supper uh, that we are going to share in together um, after this message. And so, Lord, help us to uh, uh, have attentive minds and open our hearts to what your word would teach us about why we come Uh, why this was a command, why it's an ordinance that we continue. Um, Even 2,000 years later, we continue uh, this um, particular activity together as as children of yours and as your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The church in Corinth was a church that was doing things um, poorly, Uh, not necessarily doing things in the best possible way. And uh, so the Apostle Paul is sending a letter with some correctives. Uh, He talks about lots of things they're doing well, uh, but he also sends some correctives to the church in Corinth. And one of the things, or there's, I think, 
lots of things, but there's going to be at least five things that we can learn uh, from Paul's correction to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper or regarding communion. And so, first thing that we learn about the Lord's Supper, the, the first thing we learn about communion is that uh, it is supposed to symbolize our unity or our oneness in the body of Christ. And this is really one of the main emphases that Paul makes. There's going to be more, of course, but this is a strong one. Um, Paul's already introduced this concept behind communion uh, just a few sentences earlier than our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 16 to 17, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so already Paul has begun to emphasize this idea of oneness in the body as it relates to the cup and to the bread that the church takes together uh, in following this command of Jesus. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body that's given freely on the cross. But in addition, the body of Jesus is often a reference to the church, to the gathering of believers. If the body of Christ is represented in the bread and the body of Christ is represented in the church, then Paul is saying there's a clear symbolism here that the oneness of the church is bound up in sharing the oneness of Christ. Christ is in the bread, the body is in the bread, and the body is in the church, and the church shares the bread. So the oneness of the church is bound up in that symbolism. And so we are one in Christ symbolically as the church, as we are one body that partakes of the bread together. So when we take the bread together, when we are gathered as Christians and we are partaking of communion, then we're testifying on a regular basis that we are all one body, that we are not complete strangers to each other, nor are we foreign to each other, and we are certainly not enemies of each other. That is impossible to be a witness or to be explained in the taking of the bread together. When we're one body, eating the bread, it's a testimony that we are not strangers, we are not foreigners to each other, we're certainly not enemies to one another, we are one body together. And that includes all the implications that are bound up in that which I'm actually going to let you sort out now as life groups are beginning again this week. Um, there's uh, Leaders have some questions and some discussion points around that. And we can start to unpack what are all the implications of us taking the body of Christ together, being the body of Christ together, and being uh, one body ourselves. And that's what we testify to, and that's what the Lord's Supper is meant to symbolize. Paul makes that clear, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17. And so it's in that context of 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, that then the very strong language that Paul uses in chapter 11 carries such weight. It's a very weighty accusation that Paul makes, given how strongly the unity of the church is symbolized in communion. So let's look at verse 17 of chapter 11 and see now the accusation that Paul makes, given that context. He says, but in following instructions, I, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So he's talking now, he's going to say, I don't commend you now in what you're doing. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. And so as, as 
Paul is addressing issues in the church in his letter to the Corinthians. He has been, and he will be in further chapters, for the most part, in, in when you read the letter to the Corinthians, he's exhibiting the breadth of grace that exists within the body of Christ. Uh, for instance, he talks about how some people will eat certain meats and others won't eat those meats, and that's okay. He's saying some people will remarry and other people will not get remarried, and that's okay. He will say some people have these spiritual gifts and other people have these spiritual gifts, and that's okay. He's saying there's lots of breadth for differences, so to speak, within the body of Christ and in the outworking of our walk with Christ. He says there's no problem. So when you read the letter to the first Corinthians, um, there's a lot of grace that Paul is showing. But one of the strictest correctives where Paul says this is not okay there are actually hard boundaries, you cannot do this, is regarding the communion and with an emphasis on unity. This, this is where Paul says, it's not okay just to do it however you want. There's, there's lots of places you can be different, but this is not one of them. He says later on in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so we have a picture here of a church that is both working as intended and not working as intended at the exact same time. The picture that we get of the church in Corinth and that Paul sort of gives us here is a church that is very likely being made up of people from many different classes of society. It appears that there are sort of the wealthier elite um, who have more time on their hands. Uh, they get to show up early because they're you know, not hard at work in whatever business they need to be in. And they bring with them large baskets of food and even wine. And then Along with those people, there are also sort of middle-class workers with a bag lunch, and then there's poor servants and slaves that have almost nothing, and all of these people are gathering together in the church in Corinth. And that's the church working as intended. That's how it's supposed to look. God calls all people, regardless of their social status, whether it's high or low, into his church, and he calls them to be his people together. But it's also what we see here depicted, how it's not supposed to look in the church, is that all those old social classes that come from the world, that come from our standing outside of the church, continue to function the way they are out there in the church. That's not supposed to happen. The rich are not supposed to show up early because they have time on their hands with a big spread of food and just dig into their own food and their own wine while the working class and the servants or the slaves show up later on with nothing only to find that the rich have already, you know, basically within their own little club done everything that they want to do themselves and taken everything for themselves and are satisfied. And so the working class and the servants just kind of sit in the corner and eat their egg salad sandwich or, you know, their plate of rice. That's not unity. That's what Paul is getting at. So he says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then later he says, So then, my brothers, when you come to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. So he's saying, you know, don't come starving and just gobble up the food that we had prepared for our communion in unity together. Eat at home and come recognizing that this now is something different than you satisfying your hunger. 
This is about the unity of the body. This is about you um, remembering uh, Christ. Sorry, the wind has picked up here. And uh, hopefully that'll die down. I have to hide my papers here or hang on to them. So, um, so Paul says, make sure that you that what you're doing here is different than what you're doing at home. Now, in our churches today, we don't act this way in communion. Uh, we don't act the way the Corinthians did, precisely because of this warning. I mean, the church took this warning to heart, and the church has, for a long time, limited communion down to what we experience, just a small piece of bread and a small sip of the cup for exactly this reason, so that we are not overindulging and so that we're not leaving people out and we take communion together. But just because we don't take communion in this way that the Corinthians have doesn't mean that we still don't bring into our church the social status or our divisions or our prejudices or our biases and our resentments in other ways. It still happens. It may not manifest itself exactly the way it did here in the church in Corinth in terms of eating communion in this way, but that doesn't mean that we still do not have external structures and external divisions or prejudices or biases or even personal resentments that we bring into our time when we are supposed to be celebrating our unity as one body and right at that moment when we are supposed to be remembering that we're all sinners saved by grace and belong to one body, partaking of one loaf, those resentments and those divisions are suppressed just barely under the surface. And so the first thing we take away from this and the strong emphasis that Paul makes is that as we eat and drink together, this is a time to confess our arrogance and our sinfulness and confess our divisions, confess our lack of humility, confess the um, distance we often try to place between ourselves and others and rather confess that we are all one in Christ. And so the first thing we learn here, very strong words Paul uses, that this time is a time of unity and to testify that we are one together. Secondly, uh, it seems very obvious, but Paul emphasizes it here again, the Lord's Supper or communion reminds us of Jesus' death. He says, as he's explaining to them how to do it correctly, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul reiterates the command of Jesus. As Jesus did this at the last Passover supper that he held with his disciples, he said, do this as often as you drink, as often as you eat in remembrance of me. And so what is clear here is the emphasis on remembering Christ's death. One of the reasons that Jesus gave us this simple command I think, is because he saw that the church and he saw that all believers would inevitably be involved in all kinds of legitimate activities that would take us as Christians away from the core of the gospel, which is Christ coming, the King coming, and his sacrifice for our salvation. I mean, you think about what a church or what a Christian deals with in any given year. 
there's the full range of Christian doctrine that we need to teach and that we need to study. So we have sermons on the Holy Spirit. We have sermons on how to live together as Christian families. We have sermons on evangelism and on the doctrine of God. We have Bible studies on how to manage wealth. Uh, we have grief groups to deal with death and with grief. Um, and then there's all the pragmatic things that we deal with as a church and as an organization. You know, we have government forms, we have the building, we have committees, uh, we have uh, physical um, material things like furnaces and hydro and all these things that we have to take care of. And then on top of that, you have, you know, the larger affairs of the denomination. And then as Christians, you know, we're sitting on these different committees and we're sitting on the board of a local charity, um, you know, and all these other things. And so you could go as a Christian with all of these things uh, that are part of the Christian life, and they're all good things. They're not bad things. But as a church gathered together, and even as individual Christians, we can go a whole year and hardly spend any time, if we're not careful, meditating on the death of God's Son on the cross, which is the linchpin of everything. And so Jesus says, do this. He only gives us two ordinances. There's two things that he ordains us to do. He says, baptize, and he says, remember me and remember the cross. And so he says, do this as often as you eat together in remembrance of me. Do this a lot. Do this regularly. And it's sad in a way that Jesus felt that we would need this command, that we would need to be commanded to actually stop and pause and remember his death on the cross. How could we forget him and what he's done on the cross? But we do. And when we do remember, it's a powerful corrective. This is the beautiful thing about the cross. It's a beautiful thing about communion. Because when you come to the table and you celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper the way that Paul is stressing the Corinthians need to properly, the way Jesus intended, then you can ask yourself, how can we hold our petty grudges against one another when we remember Jesus and what he sacrificed on the cross, his death for us? How can we be unconcerned about lost family and friends when we remember the price Jesus paid and his death on the cross? How can we be casual about our sin and what our disobedience and our strain when we remember Jesus and his death on the cross? How can we be unmoved by the love of God when we remember Jesus and his death on the cross? How can we not treasure Jesus when we remember his sacrifice and his death on the cross? All of these things that are so core to our relationship with Christ come to the forefront in communion. And so it is critical that we remember our unity, but also, of course, that we remember at communion the death of Christ on the cross. We have to tell ourselves this story again and again and again because Jesus knows that our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to forget the core and the important things. And it's the definitive antidote to all the ways our hearts wander from God. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper we see here functions evangelistically. Paul says it's a proclamation. He says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the word for proclaim there is just the regular word that's used everywhere in the New Testament that Paul uses for preaching or for heralding or for evangelizing. And so we can ask ourselves, how does communion 
which is actually meant specifically for Christians to partake of. It's not meant for non-Christians. It's actually meant only for Christians. And if it's a if it's an ordinance or a command that's given only to Christians, how does it impact outsiders? Well, I'm not sure that outsiders and and some denominations and some fellowships of believers have closed communion, so to speak, in the sense that um, outsiders don't even come into the communion ceremony. Um, that's like very closed communion, I'll put it. Um, but I'm not sure that very closed communion is what Paul ever intended or what the early church experienced. All of the description of, of the early church that we have in Acts, um, when Paul refers to them, often include a reference to the fact that there may be outsiders' pre presence, that there may be unbelievers present. Um, and so Paul understands that even during communion, even when believers gather and partake of this, and they would have done it every Lord's Day, every Sunday probably, not just once a month, but every time they got together, that there would be people there who didn't partake because they were not believers. They were just curious. They were just witnessing the event. And so that could be family members, it could be friends, it could be people who are just curious about the church and about the gospel and are wondering what's going on. And so they come and they witness this event. And so it is a proclamation. It's a proclamation in the sense of that we have the opportunity when we do this, because this is a very peculiar thing that we do um, as Christians. Um, it's interesting in, in Peter, Peter writes to the church and he says, we are a peculiar people. That's what the New King James, <laughs> the New King James says, we are a peculiar people. And I like that translation because we are a peculiar people. And this is one of the most peculiar things that we do. Um, and so as a peculiar people who participate in this peculiar act, uh, it provides an opportunity for us to explain. Um, you know, the thing that people see us do is very strange, taking a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice and eating the bread and eating the juice and, and remembering it as a symbol of somebody's body and somebody's blood. Uh, it's very strange. Um, and Jesus, we do it, we can, I can explain that we do it because Jesus commanded us to do it. And he didn't tell us to do it because it's some kind of, uh, you know, religious magic that does something in us when we do it, um, in that, in a, in sort of a mystical sense. Um, but because it's fundamentally we import, we remember Jesus and what he's done because the person of Jesus is so important to our faith. It's not about rules. It's not about a list of things that qualify us uh, if we behave a certain way. Uh, this act itself uh, doesn't do anything for our salvation per se directly, but because of the importance of Jesus Christ and what he has done, we as a people do this. Because his death on the cross was not just the death of a wise man. That Jesus was not just a martyr for his beliefs and having, you know, peaceful ideas. Um, but we do this because his death paid the debt for our sin. And he paid the debt for all who believe and trust in what he did. And so, if you believe in God and trust Jesus died for your sin, then you may repent and receive the gift of forgiveness. And you can have right standing before God. And you can receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life. And if you don't believe those things, then this is one of those things that kind of separates us. That, that Jesus did come to separate the world, the sheep from the goats, he said himself. And this is one of the things that separates his people, is that we have this privilege of remembering him and what he has done and partaking in these elements. And if you 
haven't trusted in him, then you shouldn't take these elements because they're not for you. But what you should do is you should watch Christians take the elements, knowing that they are forgiven, that they remember, and that they repent, and that you will see in them, to greater and lesser degrees, the effects of what Christ has done in their life. And so when we take communion, and especially as we take communion in front of the world and in front of our friends and family, we put Christ's death on display in our own lives until he comes. And after Jesus comes again, there will be no more communion. We won't take communion in heaven. Why would we look back at the cross when we're present with the risen lamb? And so Christians take communion looking forward in anticipation of that day, but also as a proclamation of what Christ has done on the cross and the centrality of our relationship to him and what he has done, rather than our relationship to the law and what we can do for our righteousness. Thirdly, or sorry, fourthly, uh, there's an opportunity in communion for self-examination. Paul emphasizes this as well. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That is a weighty sentence. He's already gave a pretty scathing condemnation to the church in Corinth about their behavior at communion. Now he explains that how we approach communion can make us guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, which is obviously sounds serious. So when we read that sentence, we need to stop and take it to heart. And it's important as we stop and we look at that sentence that we do a little bit of grammar there and be aware that Paul is speaking not of us as we come to communion, but the manner in which we come to communion. Notice how he says it. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So it's not that you or I are worthy or unworthy. It's not an adjective describing who we are, our worthiness as people as we take the bread and the cup. It is an adverb describing how we come, the manner in which we take it. Of course we are unworthy. That is why Jesus died. But there can be a worthy manner of approach to communion. It's not an approach that's based on any goodness or righteousness in us. Ironically, that would be approaching the table in an unworthy manner. Rather, in our approach we ask, how can I come to communion and say, I remember that he died for my sins when I am willfully sinning. How can I come to communion and say, I remember that he died for my selfishness and anger when I am in fact coddling and nurturing selfishness? How can I come to communion and say, I remember that Jesus died in order for God to forgive my debt of sin, but I'm clinging to the debt and the sin of others against me? That is an unworthy manner to approach this table. It's not about our worthiness, it's about our approach. As we remember the oneness of the body, which Paul has emphasized, as we remember the Lord's death and what he has done for us, Paul says this is an opportunity to examine our approach to the table. It would be unworthy to remember those things and yet hold on to our sin. So yes, we are sinners. No, we ourselves are not worthy. But we dare not approach the remembrance of the cross in a manner in which we care so little about our own sin or our own duty towards others and therefore make light of or minimize the body and the blood of Christ on the cross. So how then do we approach the table of communion in a worthy manner? 
If there's an unworthy manner in which we can approach, what is the worthy manner? And Paul doesn't keep us in suspense. He tells us right away. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the key to the worthy manner of taking communion is this idea of examination, examination of self and examination of the body. Eat after examination of self and eat after discernment of the body. The examination of self is not to make sure that we have no sin at all, rather to acknowledge that where we are honestly not perfect and righteous and where we do have sin, that we are bringing that sin before God. Paul says after the examination, and so eat the bread and drink, after the examination. So he's not saying don't eat the bread at all or don't drink at all. He's saying examine yourself and make sure that you're coming in this worthy manner of self-examination and acknowledgement of who you are and who Jesus is, and then eat and drink. And then Paul does one of these parallel statement switcheroos. That's my technical, you know, theological term for what Paul does there, a switcheroo. He says, let a person examine himself. And then he seems to restate or emphasize that instruction in the next sentence. But instead of saying, for anyone who eats and drinks without examining themselves, eats and drinks judgment on himself, you notice he doesn't repeat himself exactly in the second statement. He says, inserts, he says, without discerning the body right where we thought he would repeat examining yourself. Let me just repeat it again. Notice the parallelism. Let a person examine himself and then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now he's talking about examining yourself, so you would think that when he repeated it, he would say for anyone who eats and drinks without examining himself eats and drinks judgment on himself. But instead, he, he, he does the switcheroo, to use the technical term. And instead of saying examine himself, he inserts examine the body. Now, he's saying discern the body, examine yourself. What is, and, and we're back to now figuring out what the body means here again. Does the body mean the church? Does the body mean the relationships around us? Uh, does he mean discern Jesus, the body of Jesus in communion? And both of those would work. It could be either discern the body, because he's been talking about be aware of the church around you, right? That's been the big emphasis of this. Don't come and eat and get drunk and ignore all the church around you. So be aware of the body of the church. But it also works to think, be thoughtful of and be aware of and discern the body of Christ on the cross. So both of those readings of the body would work. Um, I can tell you what I don't think this means. Uh, it doesn't mean, as maybe has been said in other churches uh, and in history, that recognizing that the bread you're holding as literally becoming the body of Jesus. That's not what he means by discern the body, that you're now holding the body of Jesus. Nothing indicates that's what Paul means here, and I don't think anything indicates that's what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. Uh, any more than Jesus literally indicated that he was a door when he said, I am the door. Um, both Jesus and Paul mean symbolically. But the two options that we do have are the church, the whole church, and the context certainly fits here. Paul has given almost all of the words of this text to talk about the relationships of believers to each other and the testimony uh, of those relationships to the world. 
So when he says discern the body, he might be saying examine yourself and examine your relationships in the church. But the flow of the argument in this section, I think, is even simpler. And I, I don't think it's wrong to read it that way, but I think you can also read it this way, that Paul is saying, unless you sincerely recognize or discern the sacrifice of Jesus in these elements, then you're not taking them worthily. So how do you take Because this is the key thing. Paul said, don't take these in an unworthy manner or you drink judgment on yourself. So we need to get this pretty, pretty good. Paul immediately tells us how to take the elements in a worthy manner. And he says the two things are examine yourself and be aware of the body of Christ. And, and maybe in that as well, because the body of Christ and the church are one and the same, and we already have that parallel from chapter 10, in that recognizing Christ, also recognize the body around you, the body of Christ. That's how you take the elements in a worthy manner. Again, not that we're worthy, because we're not worthy to take the elements. None of us are worthy to take the body and blood of Christ, symbolically even. But we can take them in a worthy manner. There is a point in time when we approach the table that we can do it correctly. And that's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. He's saying, you can come and do this uh, correctly. You don't have to do it incorrectly. So examine yourself, meditate on the cross, remember the body of Christ around you. That's how you take the body, uh, that's how you take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And then, within that context, the fifth and final thing is the, the Lord's Supper or communion is a warning of judgment. It's a reality of the danger of our unrighteousness that we were in before we knew Christ and treasured him. And that as we approach this communion, as we approach this Lord's Supper, that there is a warning here for how we take it and what our attitude is towards Christ. He says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul is saying that in the church right now, and again, this is amazing statements that Paul is making. He's saying right now in the church at Corinth, he's saying there are some instances of illness and even death that are actually instances of God's judgment of believers who have approached his son and his sacrifice casually or flippantly. They've come to the communion without examining themselves. They've come to communion without considering Christ on the cross. They've come in a casual or flippant or offhand way, and it's actually cost them judgment because it has not been the corrective that it should be in their life. God does not want his people he does not want his church to be condemned with the world. And so he may issue discipline in order to clean up his church, is what this is saying. There's really no other way to read it. And so when it comes to sickness and suffering in the church, most of the time, we most often, and rightly so, emphasize that not every instance of sickness or death is the direct result of some specific disobedience. And we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 5, the man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, John says it's because of his sin. But in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind was not born blind because of the sin of either himself or his parents. And so there is no one-to-one -one connection that we can see directly between sickness and some specific sin. But that doesn't mean that in some cases, sickness may be the result of sin and even death. When we look in uh, later on in Scripture, in James chapter 5, 
when he is talking about uh, coming to the elders for prayer and for healing. He says in James 5.15, he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So James says he might be sick because he's sinned. And if he confesses those sins and the elders pray for him, he will be forgiven and also he will be healed. Or the elders may pray for him and he may not have sinned. He may be sick and coming to the elders for healing, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he sinned. And so James says it could be either way. It could be if he sinned or if he didn't. And so it's not always the case that sin is directly related to sickness. And we know that and we often emphasize that. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation groans. Um, awaiting the redemption. Even we groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And so we know that we live in a world that is not as God intended it, that it's fallen, that there is sickness, that there is death, and that that death and that sickness is a result of the curse and not necessarily judgment of God on us and our sin. But Paul says here, and Jesus says at times, and James, his brother, says it's possible that our sickness could be because of our sin. And so as Christians, it is always worth considering, why are we sick? Why have we sudden illness? Why have we been struck with a certain tragedy, perhaps? Um, why is this in our life? And it might be because of our sin, and we need to come to communion and come to Christ, examining ourselves to make sure that isn't the case. The testimony of the New Testament and of church history shows us that where God's church has struggled and where God's church has felt bound in chains, where the church has been oppressed um, by disobedience and sin, and where we've seen churches that have almost had that disobedience bred into it uh, over generations, we see historically it is often set free when certain influencers and leaders in that church are removed by illness and even death, so that they might repent so that the testimony of God's church is restored, so that that church's uh, mission in the kingdom is reinvigorated. Any one of us Christians who have been in a few churches or have been in church for a time has seen this happen, I am sure, or have heard of it firsthand, of churches that are caught up in generational sin, that are caught up in um, just error and disobedience, and sometimes God clears those churches out of people. And illness and death is one of the ways at times that God does that. And that kind of biblical teaching makes us a little uncomfortable. But this is the good news. If God is acting in this way in his church, it is for the good of those disciplined and for the good of the whole body of Christ. God loves his church. He sets himself against any who would destroy or frustrate his church. He wants his church to be pure. He loves us more than we love our own children. He acts more powerfully against those that would harm his church than we could act against those who would arm our, harm our children. He wants to, us to be as pure and good and right infinitely more than we are able to even desire that for our own children. And so as God's children, it just makes sense that he is all of what we are and more in a pure and righteous way to protect and to guard and to purify and to discipline and to raise up his children in a way that is salt and light before the world. So of course God acts this way. He is far more loving and good and righteous than we are. And so as a father, he is far more loving and good and righteous in his discipline of us. 
And it's this time of communion that is our most transparent and honest moment before that loving and good and righteous God. This is the moment when he has the most of our attention and the greatest share of our hearts. So those are at least five things that Paul teaches us about communion and why we do what we do. So as believers, we can come, examine ourselves, remember the body of Christ, both in terms of the real brothers and sisters around you that you are in unity with, this body of Christ, and with the body of Christ that was sacrificed for our forgiveness, for the Christ, for Jesus Christ who went to the cross. Worthily celebrate that forgiveness that we experience as we bring our sin before the cross. Lean into the grace of God and the mercy of God because we are not worthy in our own righteousness to eat at this table, but because Jesus has done all that we could not do in order to be our righteousness. Let's not overlook something incredible here that our loving God has done. Let's not miss this. He has placed the strictest warning of our self-examination of our sin as part of the exact same command as we have to meditate on and remember the cross of Christ. Don't you think that's intentional? That God intends us not to be discouraged but encouraged, not to be driven away from communion with him but into communion with him by the recognition of our need and the remembrance of what Christ has done. So let's take communion and pray together. We've only taken communion together uh, as a church online once before when COVID first began. And, uh, but I think especially today, as we've just done this message on communion, it is a good time for us to do it again. And I, I sent out a notice ahead of time on uh, Facebook. And uh, so hopefully a lot of you got that. But uh, just as a family, um, you could take uh, a little juice and a little bread right now and even take communion as we, we come and remember uh, all of these things that Christ has done and examine ourselves and examine ourselves in the context of the body and our generosity towards the, the body of Christ and our humility before the cross and take communion. And I'll just repeat again uh, what Paul passed on to the church in Corinth that he received from Jesus. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we do this together as one body, even though right now we may be separated for various reasons, remembering what Jesus has done and remembering the cross and remembering that we are one with him and we are one body together. Let's take the bread and the cup together. is crowned with glory now the Savior knelt to wash our feet now at his feet we The radiance of perfect 
Father God, we just give you praise. We give you glory. 
for the gift that you have given us of your Son, that you sacrifice nothing, that your love was established for us on the cross and we should never doubt your love. You proved once and for all your love and your willingness to bear the sacrifice for our sins. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done. And we come to the cross in humility, recognizing that we're not worthy, but wanting you to search out our hearts, to show us how we can walk faithfully in your word, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, and under the justification and the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Father, I just pray that we would be of one mind in this, that we would not that we would take everything in our church, everything in this body, to the foot of the cross and resolve all of our differences there in the light of your word, in the light of what your son has done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Paul. I was reminded this week through many